invite you to turn your Bibles today to Mark chapter 15. Our text is Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 47. Picking up at verse 33, it reads, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and some read it, Eloi, Eloi, it could also be read, Eloi, Eloi, if you were to speak it in the Hebrew, Lama Sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it and began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn, was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage, and he went in before Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph, and Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Father God, so I was thinking this morning, what an enormous privilege to preach the infallible, inerrant, final authority of the Holy Bible. What a privilege it is for every one of us in this room to have a Bible that is translated into our own language. What a privilege it is for me, Father God, to stand behind this holy desk and proclaim an eternal gospel that saves souls, that delivers people from the pit of hell, that grants to us eternal life. We have much to be thankful for. And I would pray now, Lord, as we look at your word, that by the Spirit, his power, anointing, teaching, and guiding, that our hearts once more will be opened as we walk again on this very holy ground that leads us to the cross of Calvary. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stinking as the people of God who look forward to the joy of Resurrection Sunday. Even though that day is coming, we have not shied away 
we have not steer clear of the intense suffering and cruelty that our Lord Jesus suffered to secure our forgiveness and for us to gain everlasting life in what is known as the free gift of salvation. Yes, it's a free gift. I, I believe that with all my heart. That is how it is offered to us, as a free gift. But it was not a cheap gift. It was not a blue light special because the wages of our sin cost the Holy Son of God his life. And I believe that even though we don't read about it so much in the Scriptures, not only was the heart of the Lord Jesus broken, but I believe the Heavenly Father's heart was broken in those hours that his son hung upon that cross and that awful moment when God's own holy eyes would turn away from his sin-stained son. And that's why, that's why from this pulpit I have no time for folk who dilute the sacredness of the gospel message. I can understand why the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 cried out anathema to any person who would preach a distorted or diluted gospel that doesn't save. I would uh, just say I stand in a place where we live in a day where our culture continues to become more uh, perverse and more worldly. And yet as the people of God, it is not our place in God's house to trample underfoot the Son of God or to insult the Spirit of grace. I believe, for example, 2 Thessalonians 2.3 tells us that in the last days, and whatever those days are, that in the last days, there is going to be a spiritual apostasy. I think that departure is coming. And I believe as well, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.1, that difficult times are going to come. Why? Because people are going to turn away from the gospel. They're going to turn away from the gospel of heaven, and they're going to turn to a man-centered gospel. As the Bible even says, can you imagine that they will become lovers of themselves rather than lovers of the Lord God? And so we either believe in heaven or hell, or we don't. But if you don't believe in hell, then why believe in heaven? Likewise, we believe that we're born into sin, or else we do not believe that. We either believe in the cruel truth of Christ's crucifixion, or we reject the ransom that he paid to secure our free gift of eternal life. And what will it be? Where do we stand? Is it all about us having it our way, or is it more about having it and proclaiming it God's way? Personally speaking, as a pastor, it's my responsibility to see where churches are heading, where trends are going, and I, I think to myself that evangelicalism is, is on thin ice these days. Years before the liberal denominations, they went their way, and uh, they, in those churches, they wouldn't know biblical truth if it smacked them right in the face. But we stand here in this pulpit and proclaim what the Word of God says, at just the right time. I love those words. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I have no problem believing that apart from Jesus Christ, I'm a pagan, I'm a heathen. I'm an unworthy sinner. I'm amazed by the grace of God. How marvelous. And to imagine as he offers it to us and he says, what? Believe. 
Believe in me and you'll be saved. Now, there's much rejoicing about that. And so as we come to the text today, I've outlined it this way. If you'll just notice in your Bibles, in verse 33, there is a mention of time. It says the sixth hour. Now, that is noon time. And then in verse 34, another mention of time. It says, now, it's the ninth hour. The ninth hour was 3 p.m., in the afternoon. But if you look further down in the passage, in verse 42, it then mentions what? The evening. And the evening, of course, would have begun at sunset. Now, just remember with me that up until this point, the Lord Jesus has already been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, He's been tried and convicted. And then the Bible tells us sometime around 9 a.m. in the morning, They crucified the Lord Jesus. Uh, But first notice in verse 33, when we come to verse 33, it is now noontime. So some hours have passed since our Lord's been crucified. And in verse 33, again reading it, it says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. From noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, the sky grew dark. Now, some people suggest, well, maybe there was a solar eclipse. I don't know. Maybe that's a possibility. Another possibility is that perhaps dark clouds covered the sky, clouding out the sun. Um, In our own home, one of the things that we have hanging on the wall is an old portrait. It's, it's, it's It's a poster. It's an antique, actually, It's when they first, it's in black and white, but there's a little bit of color in it when they first started to introduce colors into posters. And it was, it's about this big. It was given to my grandparents when they got married. And it's a picture of the crucifixion. And if you look at that picture, you see all the clouds have gathered across the sky. And and perhaps that's what happened. Uh, We'll find out in heaven, of course. But if you want to look at another passage for just a moment, holding your finger in Mark 15, I want to read something from Romans chapter 8. Whether this was a solar eclipse or whether it was clouds in the sky that made things grow dark, there's something else that comes to mind. And it's over in Romans chapter 8, picking up at verse 18. This is what Paul wrote. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In this passage, Paul portrays what? Creation. Creation itself anguishing over the effect that sin has had on the entire universe. As we all know, Humans aren't the only ones who die. Death is everywhere. Death surrounds us. At some point, our beloved animals die. Now, in saying these things, 
Paul here in speaking of creation and creation groaning, I just have to wonder if not only, well, could it have been a solar eclipse? I don't know. Was it clouds in the sky? Or is it also picturing perhaps that creation itself now is groaning over what is occurring on the earth? This sense of darkness and, and weeping, and creation weeping over the Savior. Or might it also picture the wrath of God? That somehow this darkness is portraying the anger of heaven over the wages of sin and death. You know, there's a sense in which I can understand God being angry. He created a perfect world. And then when we rebelled and fell into sin, death entered the world and so did sin and so did everything else. So perhaps, I, I don't know what this darkness is all about, but it's a, it's a heavy moment, isn't it? It's a horrible time, those three hours. It's a terrible time. It's as if all of creation from beginning to end is all now looking at the cross and seeing the Son of God, the Son of Man that we sung about just earlier, hanging there upon that tree. It's, it's almost to say if, that, that creation paused to see the Savior there. Well, as you know, by 3 p.m., verses 34 through 41, described as the ninth hour, 3 p.m., before we even get to the part where the Lord dies. Look again at verse 34. Our Lord Jesus cries out to his Father. You might remember in the Hebrew language, the word for God is Elohim. So this Elohim is a shortened word for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a horrible moment because the depth of misery and despair had swept over our Lord Jesus. Of course, in verses 35 and 36, there were some who, when they heard him crying out, my God, my God, they thought, what, he's calling for Elijah. And so they went, they tried to give him some sour wine to drink it. Then they said, why, why, let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down. Of course, Elijah wasn't coming. Moses wasn't going to show up at that moment. Elisha wasn't going to come either, nor was Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel, nor were the angels of heaven who could have been at the Lord's side in a flash faster than a bolt of lightning. No, the Lord was there all by himself on that tree. Verse 37 says, And he uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. As I stated earlier, just the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That, that torture that he went through, it probably lasted somewhere between 10 to 12 hours, and now it had ended. But I would remind you that while Mark's gospel doesn't say this, John's gospel does, chapter 19, verse 30, just before he breathed his last, what did Jesus say? It is finished. And you'll remember verse 38 the veil in the temple was torn, how? From top to bottom. It wasn't done by human hands. It is as if to say the very hand of God ripped that veil from top to bottom. And in what sense? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is our high priest. 
and that when he died by his blood, he didn't enter the earthly tabernacle, but he actually entered the tabernacle of his father in heaven, the holy of holies, and by his blood, he has inaugurated a new covenant, a much better covenant, so that now you and I can come boldly to the throne of grace. Who is in heaven for us right now? The Lord Jesus. He is our mediator. And you know, so shaking was his death that the least likely of all individuals, verse 39, it says, a centurion, a Roman, who was standing right in front of him, when he saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. I I just believe right there, the grace of God was already saving a Gentile. You know, as the Lord Jesus said, as King of Kings, he says, I have other sheep that I'm going to draw in as well. And of course, there were others there, brave ones. It certainly wasn't the men, though, but it was the women. Verses 40 and 41. This passage, by the way, reminds us that in Jesus' ministry life, beyond the 12 disciples, there were many other women who also followed him and ministered with him. And among them, of course, is mentioned Mary Magdalene, very famous as we know. You see, Jesus was calling people forth, whether slave or free, whether male or female, whether circumcised or uncircumcised. Jesus was bringing to himself whomever the Father gave them, and he would no wise cast them out. For his sheep, the Bible says, what? Hear his voice, and they know him. Now, thirdly, in verses 42 through 47, we come to this last reference of time. Notice in verse 42, it refers to, it says, when evening had come. Now, when it says when evening had come, uh, some things are rather obvious, but you have to expand upon them. And so I'm going to take a moment to talk about some things here. Whether you agree with me or not, that's up to you. But I want to throw this out your way. When it says evening had come, that means sunset. And if evening had come, it was now the next day. Up until this point, it had been the 14th day of Nisan, right? It had begun the evening before and had gone then through the next day. And so Jesus died somewhere around 3 p.m. on the 14th of Nisan. But after he died, Mark is telling us here, that his body was left on the cross. And then when evening came, when evening comes, it's no longer the 14th. It's now the 15th. I'm going somewhere with this. Of course, the Romans, when they crucified someone, their idea was leave them on the cross as long as you want. You know, let them hang out there because let people see exactly how powerful we are and what happens to people when they cross us. But notice something else in verse 42. Not only had evening come, it was now the 15th day of Nisan, but what does Mark tell us about that day? He refers to it as what? The preparation day. Now, this is an amazing clue here, because the preparation day was always the day before the Sabbath day. Why did they call it the preparation day? Because on the Sabbath, they weren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed by the law to cook their meals. 
And so just like if you were planning to go on a picnic, uh, you might you make your food in advance, right? Well, the preparation day was the day before the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath day begins when? On Friday evening. The preparation day began the, on the day before Friday evening. The preparation day began on Thursday evening. Now, like I said, you don't have to agree with me about these things. I'm going to expand a little bit further. But every once in a while, someone will cop on to the fact that we meet here on Thursday, um, right around resurrection, to think upon the Lord's crucifixion. I am one of those who personally believes, maybe I'll get corrected in heaven, but I personally believe the Lord Jesus did not die on a Friday. I believe he died on a Thursday. Let me just explain this to you. The Passover meal began on the 14th of Nisan. In this case, it would have been Wednesday evening. The Lord Jesus then would have died on Thursday, still the 14th of Nisan. And his body was left on the cross until evening, the beginning of the 15th of Nisan, which was the day of preparation coming into Friday, which then was the day before the Sabbath day leading from Friday night into Saturday. I've often puzzled, and I know some people have an answer for this, but why the Lord Jesus himself said that in his speaking of his death and his resurrection, it would be three days and three nights. Now, if you think about this, if the Lord died on Thursday afternoon, that's day one, Friday, day two, Saturday, day three, Thursday night, one night, Friday night, two nights, Saturday night, three nights. Now, no one seems to argue over the fact that Jesus was resurrected by Sunday morning. No one has an issue with that. However, I'm well aware that in church tradition, there is Good Friday, and the majority of people line up between, behind Friday, and they use something they call inclusive reckoning. Uh, somehow, they work out that between a Friday crucifixion and Sunday morning, that by using what they call inclusive reckoning, that somehow you can get three days and three nights out of that. I, personally speaking, I don't get that. Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 17. It says that Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, in my simple mind, I think of that as three days when the sun was shining and three nights when the moon was shining. Uh, it is, why do I mention that? Because Jesus compares his own death and resurrection to Jonah. And if you just work it out, If you go from the 14th of Nisan on the Passover to the evening of the 17th, you end up with three days and three nights. Now, in sharing all this with you today, and some of you might think, uh, whatever, but on that evening, Jesus is now dead. There's one brave soul who steps forward, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea. Another amazing story here. You think about the fact... Where are the 12 disciples? They're scattered all over the place, right? 
Peter's probably swimming in his tears at this point. And yet the last, one of the last people you would think would step forward would, would, be, would be this man. He was part of the council. He was part of the Sanhedrin that condemned the Lord Jesus. Yet this man steps forward, a man who, who was seeking the kingdom of God, just like Nicodemus, whom Jesus has said, you must be born again. And of course, what does Pilate say? Hey, I just want to be certain about something. Verse 43, what is that? Is he really dead? Is he really dead? This is an important point to make. It is a fact of history testified by many, many witnesses that Jesus truly died. And as you also know that when Joseph came, verse 46, and brought, took his body down and laid him in the tomb, and they rolled that great stone over it, what did the Romans also do? They posted a guard there, didn't they? Because they didn't want anyone to think that Jesus, you know, somehow had escaped the scene or whatever like that. Oh, no. And then there are the women. There are the women faithfully standing by their Lord. I've quoted this hymn in the past, but I think of it again. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. What, hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full redemption, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry, now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, to his kingdom us to bring, then anew this song will sing. What? Hallelujah! What a Savior! Oh, I'm going to say it this weekend. He is risen, and you're to say what? He is risen indeed. Heavenly Father, our hearts are moved ever so deeply when we contemplate the suffering that you and your Son endured to secure the full payment for the debt of our sin. And yes, we cry out, Hallelujah! What a Savior! Oh, glory be to God. We have so much to be thankful for, so much to be grateful for. And now, Lord, by your eternal grace, may we live as children of light, rescued from the domain of darkness. And may we never shrink back from proclaiming the full hope and the true revelation of your most glorious gospel in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.